0: Uh, this series in colossians wasn't su- uh, the series on the cross rather wasn't supposed to be a series in colossians but here we are anyway for the third week in a row and so uh, colossians chapter 2 and we're only going to be looking at verses 13 to 15 today but let's get the context and let's begin reading at verse 6 so colossians chapter 2 and uh, we'll begin reading at verse 6 Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. According to the elemental spirits of the world are not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body... By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Amen. That it was all just a dream. In the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, the Israelites, were trying to wake themselves up from a nightmare. Their enemies, the Philistines, had taken the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the Ten Commandments, and they'd taken it to the house of Dagon, their god. They, They wanted the Ark to serve... As a monument to their victory over Yahweh and his people. But here's what happened next. 1 Samuel 5 verse 3 says, When the people of Ashdod, Ashdod being a city in Philistia. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying, cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. The Philistines took the ark to the last place on earth that the Israelites wanted it to go, and yet in that place of defeat came victory. Now, we continue our series today called Why Jesus Died, and today we're going to see that Jesus died to disarm demonic powers. He died to conquer the whole Host of hell's fallen angels. And for Jesus' disciples, the cross was the last place on earth that they wanted him to go. In Mark chapter 10, 32 and 34... We read, and they, Jesus and the disciples, were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Why amazement? Why fear? Because they knew that Jesus was leading the way to a cataclysmic conflict. Mark continues, and taking the twelve again, he, Jesus, began to tell them what was to happen to him. Saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. But in that very place of defeat came victory. A great victory theologian of the of the last century put it like this listen he said look at him there spread eagled and skewered on his cross robbed of all freedom of movement movement strung up with nails or ropes or both pinned there and powerless it appears to be total defeat If there is victory, it is the victory of pride, prejudice, jealousy, hatred, cowardice, and brutality. Yet the Christian claim is that the reality is the opposite of the appearance. What looks like, and indeed was, the defeat of goodness by evil is also, and more certainly, the defeat of evil by goodness. Overcome there he was himself overcoming. Crushed by the power, uh, the ruthless power of Rome, he was himself crushing the serpent's head. The victim was the victor. And the cross is still the throne from which he rules the world. Jesus died to disarm demonic powers. Now, so far in this series, uh, some of us have felt, humbled. On week number one, we tried to stretch our brains around Jesus' physical and inner suffering as he hung there on the cross. And then in the second week, some of us felt small as we heard that the cross was about more than, not less than, but more than individual salvation, but also the reconciling of all things to God, whether things in heaven or and things on earth. And then last week, some of, us, some of us felt encouraged as we remembered that Jesus died to present us holy before God. And one of you said to me after the service, I just wanted to shout hallelujah. And friends, <laughs> let me just say, do that when you're encouraged by the gospel. Why on earth wouldn't you? But my hope for this message today is that we would taste victorious joy. Because Jesus' victory is our victory. And I want us to feel the way soldiers feel. When the radio waves reach their ears and they hear the words, It is finished. The battle is won. We are victors. Paul, our author, knew that victorious joy, didn't he? Even amid... Beatings and floggings and imprisonments and shipwrecks. What did he say? Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. And he said to believers like you and me who don't always feel like victors. He says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Jesus died to disarm demonic powers. And today we're going to see, number one, demonic power against us. And number two, God's victory for us. Demonic power against us. We need to ask, first of all, don't we, why are demons against us at all? You might be here as a non-Christian today thinking, Hugh, for goodness sake, I don't even believe in demons. Uh, But if they are real, what possible problem could they have with me? Well, here are two answers to that. Demons are against us because human beings display the glory of God. No, not perfectly, but as image bearers of God, we rub God's divine genius in their faces. But they're against us too because we can display the power of God's saving love. When a sinner receives the gospel of Jesus Christ, he or she becomes a living, breathing, walking, talking billboard to the power of God's saving, loving Christ. And that, friends, is their worst nightmare. Demons hate you, especially if you're a believer. And Paul says to the church in Colossae that there was a time when demons had the upper hand in their lives. Verse 13, And you, Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, we were they were unable to respond to divine stimuli, ruled by the unrestrained sinful impulses, and the devil and demons were pleased about that Paul took it one step further didn't he in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air do you hear that dead to God alive to the devil marching to the beat of his drum being led about by the nose by him and being moved like a puppet on a string by his very hand. And so the devil and demons were pleased. But what brought them most joy was not any of those things. What brought them most joy was the record of debt that stood against them, stood against us with its legal demands. Verse 14, the long, 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 Long list of your sins, my sins, with our names at the top and with our mugshots sellotaped there. Every word, every thought, every deed, every motive at odd with God's will was recorded and was waiting there ready to condemn us. And that list brought them so much joy because they know God is just. God must punish sin. Paul describes it here as a record of wrong that stood against us with legal demands. And so they were longing for the moment for us to die so that they could shove our record of wrong in God's face and watch him damn us to hell. That was the demonic power against the Colossians. That was the demonic power against you before you were saved by Jesus Christ. And that is the demonic power that's against you if you're here today and you have not yet been saved. The day is fast approaching when the seal of your record of debt will be broken And your record will be read before God in his heavenly court. And the whole host of hell is longing for that day. And my friend, what you need to realize today is this. The devil's main task in your life is distracting you from the reality of that appointment. Life is like a conveyor belt that takes us from the cradle to the courtroom. And the devil's chief objective is to get you to look anywhere but straight ahead to the courtroom that awaits at the end. He'll get you looking any which way, this way, that way, downward, behind you. It doesn't matter so long as it's not straight ahead. He'll get you looking at building a successful career. He'll get you looking at maximizing comfort. He'll get you looking at Building a social media following or getting praised by others or binging on Netflix series or substances or whatever it is, distraction is the aim of the game. I know that some of you wish I wouldn't quote uh, C.S. Lewis in my sermons because uh, C.S. Lewis did get some things wrong, and he really did get some things wrong. When C.S. Lewis was wrong, he was really wrong. But when he was right, he was really right And his book, The Screwtape Letters, is a collection of letters written by an experienced demon called Screwtape to a less experienced demon called Wormwood. And Screwtape is giving him uh, tricks and tips on how we can lead people as far away from Jesus as, as they possibly can. And what was his first word of advice to Wormwood? distraction. Here's an excerpt from the first chapter. I once had a patient, and a patient means a human. I once had a patient, a sound atheist who used to read in the British Museum. One day as he was sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way. The enemy, Jesus, the enemy, of course, Was at his elbow in a moment. Uh, Before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years' work beginning to totter. If I had lost my head and began to attempt uh, an offense by argument, I should have been undone. But I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested that it was just about time that he had some lunch. The enemy uh, presumably made the counter suggestion that this was more important than lunch. At least I think that must have been his line. For when I said quite, uh, in fact, much too important to tackle at the end of a morning, the patient brightened up considerably. And by the time I had added much better to come back after lunch and go into it with a fresh mind, he was already halfway to the door. Once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper and a number 73 bus going past. And before he reached the bottom of the steps, I had got him into an an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come into a man's head when he was shut up alone with his books, a healthy dose of real life was enough to show him that All that sort of thing just couldn't be true. But if you're an unbeliever here today, I am here to expose that tactic in your life. And what you need to understand is that in this moment, you have three options. The first option is for you to simply live in denial. There is no record of debt. There are no demons. There is no judgment. And there is no God. But have you ever stopped to consider that that mentality makes Jesus Christ out to be a fool? Because Jesus spoke often about the last day. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, In his glory, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And to deny that is to say, Jesus got that wrong, I know better. Is that really what you want to say the other option is self-reform that is cleaning up your act you might think to yourself all right well if there is a record of of debt that stands against me with legal demands then i i'm going to work on another list And I'm going to work on the list of, of my good deeds and my kind actions. And maybe at the end of time, at the end of the conveyor belt, that the latter list will outweigh the former list. But friend, if that wouldn't even work in a human court of law, then why on earth would you think that that would work in a divine court of law? Because when a crime has been committed, the crime has to be paid for. I know someone who who works as a judge. Many years before he began to work as a judge, he, he worked as a lawyer. And once upon a time, he was in a courtroom, and he listened to a lawyer trying to get his client off the hook who had been breaking into cars and stealing CD players. And the lawyer said to the judge, look, all this is, is a load of petty crimes. A stern word will get him on the right path. There need be no judgment here at all. And the judge responded and said, I've had two CD players broken out of my car in the last year, and I can assure you it's nothing petty or silly. You see, when we've sinned, we think, God will forgive me. That's his job. But when we've been sinned against, all of a sudden, we, we begin to take justice very seriously. Friends, God takes justice very seriously. The list, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. But you know, friend, there's a third option for you. And that is trusting in God's victory for us. And that's the second heading today, God's victory for us. We said, didn't we, under the last heading that before we Christians were converted, the devil and his angels had us where he wanted us. But in the middle of verse 13, Paul writes, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, they being demons, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying God took the record of debt out of the demons' hands and he put it onto the hand of Christ and he drove a nail through that record of debt so that now Every believer can know at Calvary that his record of debt has been washed clean. And that if you were to pull up that record in the archives of heaven right now, all you would see is three words written on it. Paid in full. Paid in full. No more debt to owe. My sin owe the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but in whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. We should be singing that this morning, but Michael got in the head of me and chose it for n- tonight instead, so never mind. But do you see, that is how God disarmed the rulers and authority. They were disar- disarmed because now... All ground for accusation is null and void. All of our guilt, all of our sin, past, present, and future, is washed away in blood. And so that now they have nothing on us. Nothing at all. It's why Paul asked the question in Romans chapter 8. Who shall bring any charge against us, against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Mission accomplished, victory won at the cross of Christ. Martin Luther once tried to wake himself up from a nightmare. He was having a dream that the devil came to him one day and and brought to him his record of debt that stood against him and the tempter said to him is this true Uh, did you write this and the poor terrified luther wrote someone had to confess it was all true scroll after scroll was unrolled and the same confession was wrung from him again And again, at length, the evil one prepared to take his departure, having brought Luther down to the lowest depths of abject misery. Suddenly, the reformer turned to the tempter and said, it is true, every word of it. But right across it all, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses from all sin." You know, when I, wa- I used to work as a caseworker at Christians Against Poverty, I would facilitate these repayment plans for people who were in debt. And sometimes we'd get calls from clients who were in tears or they were they were anxious because on the os- other side of a the door, there was a bailiff, there was an enforcement agent trying to get access into their house and start taking away items to have these debts repaid. And, and so I'd have to talk them down on the phone. And I would say to them, I'd say, listen, a repayment plan is in place. The balance is going down. The debt will be repaid in time. And at that point, the, the bailiff could choose to, to have mercy. He could think to himself, all right, well, there's a payment plan in place. I'll just leave it at that and we'll we'll see how things go. Or he could choose to be crafty. You see, they can't access people's properties without permission. So sometimes they would say things like this. okay. A repayment plan is in place. I'll leave you alone today. Make sure you pay in and these debts are repaid. Oh, by the way, can I just use your bathroom before I go? And clients would say, yeah, sure, come in. And because technically they'd given permission, the man would come in, start to price up items, and just take them right out of their house. But if I said to the enforcement agent on the phone, listen, listen, Your system is behind. I can see here that the debt is paid in full. The balance is zero. There is no more debt to collect. He would have to leave because there's no ground for him to collect anything. It's all been collected. It's all been paid. And friend, that's what happened at the cross of Christ. It was paid in full. All of it from the top to the bottom there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death why for god has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh not my flesh Not your flesh, in Jesus' flesh. Paid in full, mission accomplished, the price, the debt paid. Look again at verse 15. He, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities. Not only did he disarm them, but Paul says here as well, he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ, in him. And the idea here is one of a, a Roman victory parade. I wonder if you know this. When a, a Roman general had invaded a territory and conquered it, the Romans would they would take spoil. But to add insult to injury, they would tie some of the conquered citizens of whatever place to the back of the general's chariot. So that as he rode back into town under Roman Territory in Roman territory, to all of the cheers and to all of the applause, the conquered men would trail behind in shame and in humiliation. And that's exactly the, the image here. That the Lord Jesus Christ has demons and the powers of darkness chained to the back of his victory chariot. And they now follow him in utter shame in humiliation, and in great loss. Why? Well, just as those men in the first century would say, we have lost and Caesar has won, they now say, we have lost because Jesus has won. So what should we do? I want to borrow two words of application from uh, John Stott. First of all, we must resist the devil. We must resist him. The Apostle Peter said, resist him firm in your faith. Why? Because he will accuse you and he will remind you of past sin. But he cannot condemn you. So resist him with that truth. Run to the cross of Christ. We're about to gather around the Lord's table. And perhaps as you hold bread or wine in your hand, you'll hear the enemy say something to you like this. If you can merely just accept forgiveness and be assured of forgiveness, that's surely because you think your sin is no big deal. If you want God to know that you know that your sin is a big deal, you've got to wallow in shame for a little bit. You've got to beat yourself up for a little bit. Then God will know that you're serious. But friend, God knows that's a lie. The devil knows that's a lie. You need to know that's a lie as well. Resist the devil. Firm in your faith in Christ, your victor. But second of all, proclaim Jesus Christ. Because friends, here is how We all have a share, a part to play in Jesus Christ's victory. John Stott says that Christ's victory unfolded in six stages. Number one, the conquest predicted. God promised Jesus in the Garden of Eden. Stage number two, the conquest begun in the ministry of Jesus. Stage number three, the conquest achieved when Jesus cleared our debt on the cross stage number four the conquest confirmed and announced when jesus rose from the dead and aren't we looking forward to celebrate that a week from today i am anyway stage five the conquest extended and this is where we come in that as we proclaim salvation to a lost and a dying world it demolishes strongholds and demonic power left And right with the truth. And stage six is the conquest consummated. When the devil and all of his fallen angels will be thrown into the lake of fire. That burns with fire and sulfur forever. But until then proclaim Jesus Christ and his victory. You don't need a platform. You don't need a pulpit. You don't need a microphone. You need a convinced mind. You need a firm faith. And you need a warm heart for the person to whom you are speaking. And as you proclaim Jesus Christ and the victory of his cross, friend, know that God will soon crush the devil under your feet. That's what we're waiting for, isn't it? The consummation of the conquest of evil. Amen. Oh man! Well, we're going to stand and worship our victorious Lamb. Uh.